So, here we go. Continue our series of relationship goals. Tonight, I'm calling this message, Sex God. Sex God. We're talking about sex tonight. And um, I reminded Jenny of this during the week. I said, Jen, remember, I'm preaching on sex this week. She's like, oh yeah, that's right. It's like, honey, don't forget, one of our core values is being real and authentic and living an integrated life. I'm just saying. She said, you know what, I'm on kids this week. I don't have to listen to this. So, and, and by the way, I'm not listening to the podcast. Like, great, thanks, love you too. So that's how well that discussion went. Um, and while I won't be telling any personal sex stories this evening to everybody's immense relief, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, just imagine how much worse that was in person. What I will say is that my wife has shown a talent for skillfully avoiding all the difficult sex talks throughout our marriage thus far. So obviously she's avoided this one. Uh, she also avoided having to have the sex talk with Grace. Grace has been through this, but she went through it with me because she was homesick one day and Jenny was working. I said, it's all right, I'll stay homesick and look after her. And she wandered out of her bedroom and I happened to be sitting at the kitchen table reading a vasectomy flyer. And she's like, what's a vasectomy? I went, well, <sighs> how do babies get made, honey? And we just, it, it was just happening. It was just happening. It was just in the motion. She was about to have the sex ed talk like the next week because nowadays you do that in year four, okay? And so I just went, okay, let's go for it. So I explained it all. And the emojis that her face became during that conversation was incredible from like, Like, it ended up, she burst out laughing. She thought it was the funniest thing ever. Like, well, okay, yeah, it is kind of, I can imagine why a nine-year-old would think that was funny. So then we take her to the sex ed class, and the facilitator, who's dealing, remember, with like 80-year four kids and trying to teach them about sex. That's about as bad as teaching you guys about sex. And the, these year four kids are sitting there, and the, teacher, the facilitator's going through it, and she's explaining all the body parts, and then she's like, right, does anybody know what it's called when a man puts his penis in a woman's vagina and Grace's hand shoots up? And the facilitator's like, yes. And she says, sex, super proudly. And it was hilarious. Very, very funny. All the other parents are like dying laughing. I thought it was pretty funny too. So now I'm here with you giving you all the sex talk, but from God's perspective. And let me tell you, I've never felt more uncomfortable Google researching a topic for a sermon. Uh, it has been a busy week, lots and lots of research. So what I'm going to do to really get into this message is take a leaf out of the facilitator from Grace's sex ed class, because she did something in particular. She just said all the sexual words that the kids needed to hear over and over again until they got the giggles out of their system. So basically, penis, 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 vagina, 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 sex, 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 sex. Are we good? We can keep going? Excellent. All right. All right, people, I'll probably still giggle on the inside, but it's okay, keep going. <laughs> Terrific. So, you know me, I'm a pacer. If you've been here for a while, I love to move around the stage. I probably will not do that much tonight because I've got a lot of ground to cover and I want to get it right. I will repeat something that I've said for most of this series. We're in a series called Relationship Goals, and our goal in this series is to help our relationships become more like the ones that God has planned for us. To have God's actual goals at the center of our relationships. But tonight, I really want to make sure I get this right so I won't pace around very much and I will read from my notes a bit more so that 
I'm not saying off-the-cuff offensive things because I want to repeat what I have said a couple of times this series. There will be times in this series when you feel offended, when you don't like what's being heard. None of that is intended to upset people, but I'm trying to deliver what I believe is God's perspective on all of these issues. And if you feel something nudging at your heart or your spirit at this time, it may just be that the Spirit of God is, is challenging you and that God is trying to speak to you. So I'd encourage you, if you feel uncomfortable, stop listening to me and start listening to what your spirit is saying. It might be God. But you can keep listening to me too if you want. So, Encounter Church, why in the middle of this whole series are we dedicating an entire message just to sex? Because somebody I respect in the wider church once, not in Encounter Church, but in the wider church, once was, was in a conversation with me where they were talking about sex and sexual formation, and they were getting quite worked up, and eventually they burst out with and said, I don't get what the problem is, it's just sex. It's just sex. If sex is really as big a deal as it has been made out to be, or have we made too big a deal out of sex? What does God really think about it? Well, I want to put it to you today that God wants you to have the best possible sex life. So that's good news to start with. I think God wants you to have the best possible sex life. Before we get into the next part, I've talked about being offended, but I want to reiterate this again. This is something I like to say a lot because it's important. We are a future-focused church at Encounter. Future-focused. We have no interest in condemning you for your past. We have every interest in equipping you for your future. So if you feel, if you come here and, and you feel like sex has been an issue in your past or you're living a different lifestyle to this right now, or that, you know, that's up to you, right? But just know that what we're trying to say tonight is what God is saying about it. We will never condemn you. We will never judge you for your choices. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a part of this community here, part of this church, we will always do our very best to support you, to love you, to champion you, to challenge you, to grow you into being the best follower of Jesus you can be here on out. Is that good? Yeah. It's good. We're a future-focused church. It's not about guilt. It's about direction. Guilt is about the past. Direction is about the future. It's about the future. So one huge problem with the way we look at sex is we get a bit defensive because of our past mistakes. And whether that's the way we look at people, our sexual feelings, our sex drive, our sex history, whatever, we get defensive. Let's not get defensive. When we get defensive, we put up a wall that God can't get through. Not because he doesn't have the power, but because he has grace. And he says, okay, if you're going to put up the wall, it's all right. It's up to you. So I want to get through three frequently asked questions, okay? These are three questions that I suspect will be at the heart of some people here one way or another. Start with the first one up on the screen. Is God anti-sex? Is God anti-sex? I think that's a fair question because in some parts of Christian history, the church has kind of treated sex like it's something to be afraid of. I was actually, funnily, the things you research doing this, I did some research on chastity belts. Has anybody ever heard of that concept, a chastity belt? Apparently, it's like, Totally false. They never existed. There was no medieval chastity belt, which when you stop and think about the entire process, makes a lot of sense. But it was basically all the stuff that it was written in, most of it was satire, and people were just now deciphering and going, oh, oh that's probably a joke. Well, hang on, think about it. Look at the like, actual historical context. It was never there. So you've got these, this fear of sex that's sort of driven up, and then it's been driven by like, smart mouths, basically. You know? So this is what we do. So is God anti-sex? Well, 
There is a book in the Bible that I've actually been devo- doing devotions on this week, which has been fun, called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Hands up who's heard of Song of Songs. Hands up who's read Song of Songs. Less people. Okay. Hands up who's sat with their husband or wife and read Song of Songs to them. Just curious. No, nobody's putting their hands up. Okay. Song of Songs is basically erotic poetry. It's sex literature in the Bible. Um, including passages like this one, where the male lover says to the female lover, I'm so glad for the lights, I can't make eye contact with any of you. (laughs) Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. (laughs) Whew! I'm wearing palm... Am I wearing palm trees? That is awkward. (laughs) (laughs) I need to stop before I start blushing more. Whew! It gets worse from there. I'm just telling you. Then you got Paul's wisdom in 1 Corinthians 7. And we, I preached on this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about singleness. But there's more in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, where he says this. Husband and wife, do not deprive one another from sex, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again. <laughs> He's basically saying, look, if you're going to not have sex, do it for a short period of time. And then keep having sex. Like, great. I can live with that as a spouse. And finally, there's Genesis. And this is important. Male and female, created in the image of God, naked and unashamed. Sex as part of the divine plan to populate the entire earth. Now, okay, that could sound a bit functional. Sex to populate the entire earth. Except, spoilers if you don't know this, sex feels fantastic. So God didn't need to do that. We don't need to do that to reproduce. Uh, Like some of the scientific method arguments would say, humans and animals and any biological creatures, they have an instinct to reproduce because it, uh, it helps their species keep going further. Now, that's great. That's possibly true. But wouldn't we do that anyway? God somehow designed us with pleasure as part of that. And that's pretty extraordinary. And not just for one person, but for both people. The orgasm is not a design flaw. How good is that? That's good news. So no, God is not anti-sex, which brings me to frequently asked question number two. If God isn't anti-sex, are there really any rules around sex? Okay. That's kind of like asking if God is not anti-plants, are there really any rules around drugs? Because they come from plants mostly. Well, there's wisdom around everything, but sex is something much more powerful. So are there clear rules, boundaries of wisdom around sex? Well, there are, yeah. I'm going to run through a handful of scriptures as quickly as I can. Exodus 20.14, one of the Ten Commandments says, You shall not commit adultery. Proverbs 6.32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Just a side note, it's always fun when the gendered language like backfires on men. Like, he who commits adultery is what it says. Anyway, but... You might be saying, but that's adultery. Adultery is specifically breaking marriage vows. That doesn't talk about sex before marriage or outside of marriage necessarily. Okay, sure. But first remember that in Old Testament times, people were getting married as young as 13, and it was an arranged marriage culture. And this is why verses like Exodus 22, 16 exists. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her consensually, he must then pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. Now, we might look at that as horrible. We're talking about a 4,000-year-old ancient near Middle East culture. And in that ancient culture, there's no dating. There's less emphasis on romance and arranged marriages from the age of 13 or even earlier. 
The major problem was that that happened in the reverse order. In that culture, it should have gone, pay the bride price, get married, then have sex. But in Exodus 22, we hear about someone breaking that and put it in reverse. Have sex, get married, pay the bride price. It's like, no, 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 that's not how it happened. Plus, of course, biologically, when we're talking about consensual sex between two young people, hormonally, biologically, it would functionally be kind of impossible, right, if they're not already hitting that 12, 13, 14-year-old mark. And again, bearing in mind that we think that puberty is getting a bit younger now than it used to be. Does this make sense? I know that's a bit technical. So their hormones and sex drive would not have been fully developed. Sex before marriage is definitely prohibited. But Mike, you might be saying, that's the Old Testament. We live under a new covenant now. We can eat shellfish and everything. (laughs) Fantastic. My brother-in-law owns an oyster farm. Um, I'm very happy we can eat all sorts of shellfish. Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, yada, 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 which is idolatry. Oh, but that's Hebrews and Paul, we're followers of Jesus. Don't ask that question, because it gets worse for you. Matthew 5, chapters, verses 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's pretty comprehensive. Then in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he summarizes it by saying, if you want sex, get married, otherwise be a eunuch. I'll get married, thanks, out of those two options. Tough stuff. So sex outside of marriage is very clearly not permitted by Jesus or across the entire canon of the Bible. It's helpful to always measure Scripture against Scripture, Old Testament with New, bring it together, Old Covenant, New Covenant. But here's the third and most important frequently asked question. Why? Why? Because it's all very well to say, yes, the Bible doesn't agree with this. But if we don't know why, if we can't wrap our heads around what God wants to do in our lives because of this, it doesn't really matter. That's the real question. Because God is pro-sex and pro-your sex life. And we will kick on with some of this next week. And by the way, I should add, next week where Jenny and I are going to be up here interviewed by Tommy Brooke. We're talking about marriage. We're preaching on that together on our anniversary. So that'll be a lot of fun. Jenny and I... Yeah, the more we talk about this and the more we practice, the more terrified we are for what could happen with both of us up here answering these questions at the same time. But it's going to be really good. And what we want are your questions. So uh, we want you, if you want to send us through Slack, through Messenger, through Instagram, whatever, send us through any questions you have about marriage, relationships, sex, the whole shebang, anything. We want to get those questions for next week. So why does God lay these rules down for us? And why so many rules around sex? Why should we feel restricted? We live in a sexually free society. Sex is one of, if not the, dominant cultural forces in our lives. Wurtz, Sparks, and Zimbris, which is a great name for a group of researchers, did some research last year about advertising li- literature pardon me, and found about 80 studies representing about 18,000 participants. The results were conclusive. Sex grabs attention. So if you put something sexual in your ad, it will grab attention. People will remember the ad. But weirdly, 
They don't remember the brand. They don't. The brand doesn't stick. It's just the ad. The sex itself is what sticks. So it doesn't sell. Sex, sex does draw attention, but it doesn't sell. It just helps your ad get remembered because sexual imagery is incredibly powerful. And to nobody's surprise, the research showed that it's more powerful on men than women. The same study showed, by the way, in terms of sales and brand awareness, uh, using a social justice idea to sell your product is actually better now than using sex, which is arguably more disgusting to take a social justice idea and use it to sell laptops or something. You know what I mean? This is where we are now, advertising. So the research has concluded that the reason sex has been overtaken is because sex is more available now. Porn is everywhere it's so available via the internet that it's actually become less exciting for advertising. Isn't that interesting? So let's get into porn culture for a second, which I know is what you were all hoping when you came here today. If you are new, we've blocked the doors. <laughs> porn is now directly responsible for shaping our sexual behaviours and shaping our mental health. I've skipped over a whole bunch of neuroscience stuff, which is really interesting. Come and ask me later if you want to, but has been linked to an increase in sexual violence. Here's a quote from the ABC and documentary maker Marie Crabb. Marie Crabb says this, Coming from a background of work in sexual violence prevention in schools and workplaces, when she made this uh, documentary on pornography, Ms. Crabb was interested by what she found. The industry is really candid, this is a quote, industry is really candid about the aggressive nature of the material they make and the fact that the aggression in porn is often directed towards the female performers, she said. The most common forms of aggression were gagging, choking, and slapping of female performers, which the performers responded to with apparent enjoyment. Ms. Crabb also interviewed a range of young people on the subject and found that many young men's sexual encounters were shaped by porn. And she said young women sometimes found their sexual encounters uncomfortable, but were eager to please their partners because they are being shaped by the young men and the young men are being shaped by porn. Now, the porn industry doesn't care, of course. Because the porn industry is worth somewhere between six and fifteen billion dollars American annually in the United States alone. Fifteen billion dollars a year just for the US. That's the porn industry. It's bigger than Netflix, it's bigger than Disney, it's bigger than a lot of industries. So the porn industry drives the stuff on purpose because there's too much money in it to change. From the ABC again and the Burnett Institute, quote, We're not out to prove that watching porn is a bad thing, but definitely watching pornography more frequently is associated with some negative outcomes such as poor mental health, though we can't say from this study if one is causing the other, Dr. Lim said, the doctor running that study, which means she can, but she won't, because frequently porn is becoming one of those things that's becoming less acceptable. We haven't quite got there yet, but it's becoming less acceptable to critique Porn. It's like, no, no, this is just how some people express themselves. Well, it's directly being linked with poor mental health, as well as sexual violence. Personal freedom is the highest good. The study goes on to say that the median age of first porn viewing is now 13. That means that's the middle number, the median, which means you've got people, if you assume that some are viewing porn for the first time at 17, 18, 19, 20, do the maths the other way as well. The sexual liberation movement of the 60s and 70s swept up with it the feminist movement that began about the same time. And the feminist movement that's particularly taken shape in the last decade. And they both became movements together, except 
Sex won. Or best case scenario is winning. How do we know that? Because women feel pressured now to do things like act out porn scenes because of the shaping of minds and sexual ethics by porn. And because there's been research that indicates that there's a kind of reverse pressure now that if I'm a fully functional, free, liberated woman to do whatever I want, aren't I being a prude if I don't do these things? There's research that there's this kind of reverse peer pressure to go, yeah, yeah, of course, like, why wouldn't I want to do it? Isn't that grotesque? Women in our generation not only get breast implants, that's old news, right? We all know about that. Some of them get labia surgery so that their genitals look more like the genitals of porn stars. That's horrific. This is how porn has shaped us. A few other fast comments. Porn has helped cause an increase in erectile dysfunction. Porn has helped cause an increase in sexual violence and more broadly violence against women. Um, porn has helped cause... I, I can't help but think of um, that comedian from Victoria. When, I, I can't remember her name. Eurydice Dixon, is that her name? Horrific, horrific. Porn has helped... Porn has helped cause an increase in poor mental health. Porn has helped cause a decrease in relationship satisfaction. And statistics indicate that 80% of Australian teenage boys watch porn weekly. And when I preached to that youth ministry on Friday night, I shared that with them. And there was about as much noise as there is in this room. It is impossible to overestimate the effect that porn is having on shaping our lives. Absolutely impossible. And because... Because sex is so deeply ingrained in our culture, it becomes like a fish in water when the bird flies over the fish and says, how's the water today? And the fish says, what's water? Because they just swim in it all the time. We are so deeply sexualized that we don't realize how far down the rabbit hole we are. You may be realizing by now that A, the hardest part of this message was realizing what to leave out and B, don't expect an early dinner time. Second thing I want to talk about is the swipe right culture we live in now, right? Everyone familiar with this term, swipe right? It's a Tinder term. In Jonathan Grant's book, Divine Sex, he compares the kind of relationships had in the 21st century to subprime lending, all right? So this is uh, lending that happened particularly in the United States, but it happens all across the world here in Australia. There's some fears about it right now. Uh, basically, to people who can't pay it back. That's the short version. And he calls these subprime commitments, they're high-risk projects with little to no collateral security. And he points out the following. Only one in five cohabiting relationships ends in marriage. Cohabiting significantly increases the likelihood of divorce. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Women who cohabit multiple times, the stats are only about women for this one, I'm afraid, before marrying divorce almost twice as frequently as those who only live with their future husband. Serial monogamy, this is really interesting. A string of consecutive, consecutive sexual relationships. Emphasis on relationship here, not one night stand. Actually hinders eventual marital sexual satisfaction. Hinders it. Doesn't make it better. Sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for the increased likelihood of infidelity within marriage. John Tyson, in his unbelievably good message on sex from his controversial Jesus series... Go on your podcast provider, look up John Tyson, look up Controversial Jesus and listen to his message on sex because he's just better at this than I am. Says this, 56% of marriages that fall apart in the USA feature at least one person with an addiction to porn. Most teens, most teens claim they learned how to have sex by watching porn. 
And he describes the passage I quoted from 1 Thessalonians 4 earlier about premarital sex as basically sexual fraud. Paul's warning against sexual fraud, that is, promising with your body what you will not give with your life. Vanity Fair, not a Christian publication, in case you're wondering, did an article on how culture is becoming shaped by Tinder. It is a must-read. Just Google Vanity Fair Tinder article. Here are five of my favorite quotes from a very long, very, very good article. Number five, I've got numbers on Tinder just by sending emojis, says John, without actually having a conversation. Having a conversation via emojis. It's deep and beautiful. Number four, a few young women, this is a quote, a few young women admitted to me that they use dating apps as a way to get free meals. I call it Tinder food stamps, one said. Ugh. Number three, they start out, this is a quote from someone called Reese. Reese is a girl, just to clarify. They start out with, send me nudes, says Reese. Or they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. Number two, with these dating apps, he says, again, this is another quote, you're always sort of prowling. Not a great term to use. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you could swipe a couple of hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them, so you could rack up 100 girls just like within a year. I bet that makes everyone feel really special. He says that he himself has slept with five different women he met on Tinder. Tinderellas, the guys call them, in the last eight days. And number one, another quote. I hooked up with three girls thanks to the internet off of Tinder in the course of four nights, and I spent a total of $80 on all three girls. That sounds an awful lot like it's being viewed through a different lens. And a bonus one, which I've paraphrased um, because they used a different company from America, but a guy said, it's kind of like using Uber Eats but with people. That feeling in your mouth is your lunch. If you're wondering why we have so many beautiful, intelligent, brilliant, single women and single Christian women, it's because our culture right now is being shaped by porn and shaped by Tinder. And it's, it's, not, it's not just about men who can't get it together. You know, I, I know I made a few jokes in our, in our um, single message, you know, encouraging men to get it together. It is not just about that. It's about the shaping of our entire society being pornified and being, being turned into this at, my, at the click of a button, you know? At the click of a button. I can get a notification, and then I can get a hookup. It's that easy. It's not just about men. It's not just about those two drivers. But unless you want another 45 minutes of sex ed, we're just going to move on. All right. I'm sensing people want to move on. So let's get into Scripture. Hopefully that's helped explain why there has to be some clarity around sex, why there does have to be godly wisdom and boundaries, why it actually isn't a good idea for us all just to be in a free-for-all, because human nature is not necessarily good. And I, I, might, just, I might just touch on the neural pathways stuff just for a second, which is, the, there's, a, there's a phrase, um, I believe, the more, I think it's called, the more, let, me, let me get this right. What fires together, wires together. What fires together, wires together. And it describes how pathways in the brain are formed and reinforced through repetition. 
Uh, so the more the brain does a certain task, the stronger that neural network becomes, makes the process more efficient each, each successive time. But where this becomes more disruptive in porn is it, it's not enough just to get the same hit as before, because dopamine is involved, right? The, the brain's pleasure release system. Dopamine's involved, and you don't get the same hit every time. You need a bigger hit. So it needs to be something more drastic, more diverse. This is where sexual violence comes back into it. Great stuff. What a great topic. So that's sexual ethics. That's why it matters that sexual ethics exists. That's why the line, it's fine as long as nobody gets hurt, is bullcrap. Because we live in an ecosystem with other human beings. And what you do affects the way you treat other people. Even if it's you alone in your room, that affects the way you go on to treat other people. The way a young man alone in his room looking at pornography looks at that and internalizes what that means affects how they then go on to view relationships. So it's fine as long as it doesn't hurt anybody is a lie. Three Bible passages from the New Testament I want to talk about today that I haven't already talked about. Because the Bible talks about sex a lot. Jesus knows what's at the heart of human beings. You'll find that a lot of what Jesus talks about can be traced back to sex, money, or power in one way or another. Matthew chapter 1. Now, this is probably not a space you would regularly expect to see read from about sexual morality. But I just happened to be reading it in my devotions today, actually. And I thought it was really interesting. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Again, not somewhere you'd look for like, explicit sexual instruction. Hopefully you're not looking for explicit sexual instruction in the Bible. Probably a poor turn of phrase. Song of songs, though. Palm trees. There are, there are five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, in G Hebrew times, that's unheard of for any women to be mentioned in the genealogy. But the particular five that are mentioned are all fascinating because they are involved in sexual sin in one way or another, not necessarily their fault, but perception. It talks about Judah fathering Perez and Zerah, twins, by a woman named Tamar. Tamar was Judah's either daughter-in-law or I think daughter-in-law. And she dressed up like a prostitute because he wasn't, he wasn't giving her basically the rights owed to her. So she slept with him. He left some of, some of the things that proved his identity. And she bore a child through Judah uh, to the shame of Judah. And it is included in the lineage of Jesus. It's not left out. It's included. This is why the Bible is so trustworthy. Then you go down a bit further, and it talks about Salmon fathering a guy called Boaz, who I talked about the other week, by Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. Now, hers is very much a redemption story, where she is a prostitute, and then she helps the Jewish people, and then she becomes in the family of Jesus. So that her sexual sin is earlier, but there's still a bit of scandal there. Boaz then fathers Obed by a woman named Ruth. We talked about Ruth. You can read about her in the book of Ruth. She's got her own story, and it's amazing. David, then it says, fathered Solomon, now this is even better, by Uriah's wife. Why does it not say Bathsheba's name? Because the Bible, and Matthew in particular, wants to heap more shame on David for murdering Uriah. It's not a, a scorn to Bathsheba, it's a memorial to the murdered Uriah. The Bible does not hide from this stuff. And then finally, the verse I want to look at, verse 16, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. Now, that sounds fine. Until you remember something, that um, it says then in verse 18 that before Mary and Joseph came together, it's, Joseph discovered that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now, we read that, and if you've been in church before, you read it, and you go, yeah, Christmas story, that's beautiful, pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Let me just flip this around. 
you're engaged to somebody, you're a man, you're engaged to somebody, and she goes, hey, I'm pregnant. Don't worry, though, it was the Holy Spirit. And you're like, I'm, I'm going to check your DMs, okay? I trust you, but I'm just going to check them. So what did Joseph do? This is what it says. Joseph looks to divorce her legally under Jewish law, but to do it secretly so as not to bring shame to her. He's saying, this wrongdoing has been done to me, but I'm going to divorce her secretly because I don't want her to be ashamed. Then he has a dream, and an angel directs him and says, everything she's told you is true. Relax. Relax. Joseph has a choice. He does not have to marry her at this point. He can go through with the divorce, but he trusts in God, trusts in the angel, and marries Mary. We, don't, we often hear about Mary's incredible faith, and we should. We rarely hear about Joseph's. And he wakes up, and instead of divorcing her, he marries her. And I love this because it's a reverse of that law in Exodus 22 that I mentioned three hours ago when I began preaching. And it's that the law stated that the correct order went bride price, marriage, sex. But Joseph's life went this way. Pregnancy, bride price, marriage, waiting, 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 birth. And then if you've had kids before, waiting, waiting, sex. Joseph put his, he doesn't sleep with his wife. He doesn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. Joseph puts his personal sexual preferences beneath the will of God and the well-being of his wife. It's powerful, really powerful, particularly considering the power a man held in that culture. Joseph's sexual ethic consists of this, God, I will do what you tell me to do. I will do what you tell me to do. 1 Corinthians 6, it's the second one I want to look at. This is a really, really important one and worth looking at in deeper view. Verse, I'll start at verse 18. You can start from verse 12 if you want to, and that's helpful, but just to save time and an already long message, I'll start at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Run away. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, Paul is talking to a church in Corinth. He's writing to a church that's really just having sex with anyone and anything. Like 1 Corinthians is like a letter to the most dysfunctional church on the planet. But instead of saying, as he does in other places with other sin, not to associate with them or to imitate Paul. He says, flee, just run away from sexual immorality. Don't try and fight it, okay? Just flee, turn around and run away. By the way, the word for repentance means literally to turn around and run the other way. Paul was advising advice within the advice to say, turn to Jesus, run away. Paul says, this is not just about something you do, like to steal something or to desire something or someone. This is a way that you actually punish your own body. And Paul frequently uses these analogies of, of, of when you use your body to do it like an athlete, discipline your body, treat your body as holy, a temple of the living God, give it all to God, discipline yourself. And Paul says, you know, but in this case, just run, just run. And Paul reminds us our bodies don't belong to us. We didn't make them. We didn't earn them. We inherit them as a gift from God paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. Clearly, sex is not bad. Sex is good. But the way we use it is bad. So Paul reminds us to dedicate all of ourselves, including our bodies, to the service of God. At this point, you may be thinking, 
well, isn't what I feel important? Isn't my opinion about this important? And my answer to that is, well, yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, They're not unimportant, but your personal sexual feelings and opinions are not the most important thing. This is difficult for us to grasp because we live in a culture that says personal freedom is the highest good. You do you, girl. You do you. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes you happy? Okay. All right. Maybe the wisest thing somebody said to me this week was having an opinion is overrated. Having an opinion is overrated. It was said by a very old, wise lady. Not that old, if she ever hears this podcast, but an older, wise lady. (laughs) Having an opinion is overrated. I think that's very wise. As followers of Christ, we are invited, we are challenged, and we are called to put the will of God and the leading of God above our own opinions. We humble ourselves in this way, and we submit our personal opinions and our preferences before God, and we say, like Jesus says, not my will, but yours. Yours. Final scripture, and the band, you guys can get back up. That'd be great. Yep, no, no, you can keep it on the previous one for a sec, Vic. Just go back. Cool. I'll read it, and then when we get there, just flick across. Final, final, final verses come from John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is, is one of my very favorite passages in scripture. It's a bit contentious in some places. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Imagine the humiliation. Teacher, they said to him, This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. That's interesting. I'm pretty sure in an act of adultery... There would also be a man, but he seems to be mysteriously absent. Let's continue. Verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, He straightened up and said to them, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Again, he stooped down and began to write on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. People have guessed, but nobody actually knows. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And this is classic Jesus. Classic Jesus. A woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, not because they cared about the woman, not because they gave a damn about Jewish law, but because they wanted to test Jesus. Imagine the kind of human being who simply uses another human being to test someone. No thought for this woman whatsoever. Bearing in mind her life is hanging in the balance. And they certainly didn't care about the man caught in adultery with her, who is mysteriously absent, but simply to test Jesus. This is really about as evil as it gets. That's really, really dark. This can be found in the hearts of humanity. You see echoes of it in our pornified culture, in our Tinder culture. So what does Jesus do? He's in an impossible situation. 
Are you going to kill her or are you going to break the law? And Jesus does something a little bit different. He forces the accusers to look into their own hearts rather than into the woman's or into Jesus. He never disputes Jewish law. He never denies the claim of adultery. He simply places the burden of guilt back on the accusers. Not because Jesus wants people to feel guilty, be saying, this is what you want to do? You want to use this weapon? All right, you tell me. How does it feel? What are you going to do when that happens to you? That speck that you're pointing out in someone else's eye, what are you going to do when you recognize the log in yours? And I have to imagine that Jesus' heart is in his mouth the whole time. Because if we know nothing else about Jesus, is that he's the Prince of Peace. His ways are for good and for hope and for the future and are not for violence or death. And he knows that all it takes is them not to examine their own heart, to pick up the rocks and go, the law says she should be killed and stone her to death. I have no doubt that Jesus was praying as this happened. Maybe that's what he was writing in the dust. But Jesus knows the hearts of people too. And they begin to walk away. And the only one left is the broken one. The woman waiting for Jesus to finally address her. Sometimes we read this passage with our 21st century self-righteous attitudes. Go, Jesus didn't even look at the woman. No, that's right. He's dealing with the guilt in the heart of the accusers before he deals with mercy for the accused. He's getting rid of the accuser before he's setting the accused free. In verse 10, Jesus straightens up and doesn't say he looks at her, but I imagine he looks at her and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. I need to let you know in Counter Church that the invitation of Jesus to you is always in those two sentences. Neither do I condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Jesus, Jesus isn't going to affirm sinful behavior. And it's important we know that. But he's also not going to condemn the broken either. He is a savior. He saves. It's in the job description. This is what he does. And Jesus right now is reaching out to you to make you whole again in your brokenness. And this is a thing that he can do. And your response, friends, should not be to beat yourself up about your behaviors. Your response should be to press into Jesus. The key issue in our sexual formation is we are still looking around for someone else to tell us what to do. We've been afraid to talk about it together. And so quietly, we just go online for help. That's our advice column. But you and I are not meant to be formed by the internet or by popular culture. We are not meant to be swept with the waves of society. John Tyson said something else very smart, and I'll paraphrase it. He said, as Christians, our job is not to stand in culture and judge culture. In Christ, as Christians, our job is to stand as a community and affirm one another in the way of Christ. Culture will do what culture will do. And if we can prophetically speak into it and make an impact, Amen. But often, the voices that are loudest crying at culture are the ones that are ignoring what's going on in their own hearts. They're the ones who maybe come to church and just shake everybody's hand and then slip out the back door that aren't wanting to do the hard work of what's going on in their own hearts. You're an encounter church. We are real. It's who we are. 
If you don't like that, this will get uncomfortable. But it's a good uncomfortable. It's a real uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable where you can be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not formed by the internet. We are formed in the image of God. We're not made by popular opinion. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb. God has shaped our sexual ethics so that they bless us. Again, the orgasm is not a design flaw. Benefit others. Two people come together. Limit hurt. We've gone through so much hurt today. Create loving family units. Bring us sexual pleasure and relational fulfillment. And, and you've got to catch this, they reflect our covenant with God. In 1 Corinthians, again, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives this really jarring statement when we read it where he says, the wife should submit herself to her husband with her body and the husband should submit himself to his wife with his body. It's like, hang on, you're saying we have no control over our bodies whatsoever? Like, oh, 21st century outrage. No, no. What Paul is saying is that when relationships are working right, you offer your whole self and love one to another. But the problem is when you are, your body is being run by someone else, you can't demand sex from them because they might say, actually, that's not what I want from your body tonight. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? People are working in the interplay, not in selfishness. It's selflessness, not selfishness. It's not about what I want. It's about laying down our lives for somebody else. I think I read that somewhere once. God wants us to have the best possible sex life. It's just that we have been very slow to realize that his wisdom from this is both different and better, not just different, better than our wisdom. Better. So the question at the end of this message should not be, why should we listen to the wisdom of the Bible in this? The question should be, why am I not already doing that? Look how much wholeness, look how much goodness comes from it. Look how much hurt and pain and horror comes when we don't. Or the question maybe should be, how am I being formed as a follower of Jesus? How am I being formed as a follower of Jesus? So, I am finishing now. Proper. promise this time. What do we do? What's our response? Because right now, some of you are feeling pretty crushed. Because uh, that, that's what happens when the Spirit of God is at work in that our, our own history, our own past rises up within us and stirs within us and causes us pain. And the object is not to cause us pain, it's cause to identify that there's a problem that needs healing. That's the point of pain, right? To show us where something needs healing. And one of the things you probably don't know if you're sitting here feeling crushed or you, you may be choosing not to be aware of is that around you, you are surrounded by people who have been broken by sexual sin. Surrounded by it's dark in here. You know, don't look around at them. That's rude. But <laughs> you're surrounded by other people whose lives have been broken by sexual sin. I've talked about this before, and I'll say it again. It always kills me, but I think it's beautiful and sweet that people walk into a church for the first time, and often their thought is, these people have it all together. It's just me wrestling in my brokenness. And that's a lie. That's a lie that the enemy is saying to get into your spirit to say you're not good enough. Now, part of that's true. We're not, but in Jesus, we are made whole again. 
You are surrounded by people whose lives were broken by sexual sin, but Jesus has put them back together by his grace and his love, and he will do this for you if you let him.